Philip Vitale, and this insight explores the transportation developments that might help reduce global warming without demanding drastic lifestyle changes. Around the world, the transport industry is trying to clean up its act and reduce emissions and congestion for the sake of the environment. But what progress is it making? No one following Twitter or listening to the radio could be unaware that people today are living well beyond their environmental means and by doing so are putting future generations in jeopardy. The view of the future when it comes to the damage caused by most forms of transport is generally pessimistic. Not often is the argument put forward that technological advances can present a solution. The optimists argue it's possible to maintain the way of life we enjoy now and cause the planet less harm at the same time. One such person is the American electric car pioneer, J.B. Straubel. Should we just you know, give up all technology and sort of have that be the solution to our problems? But you know, how many people drove here today or flew an airplane here? You know, finding ways to minimize the impact of the things that we have to do to carry on in society today is a really critical way to, to make an impact. I am Eric Frickberg, and this insight considers the arguments of those who think that some of the solutions to this problem are already almost here. The challenge facing those who want to haul back emissions levels and limit global warming is that people want to hang on to their current lifestyles, and they even want to improve the ones they already have. BMW is working on this principle of making sure that the cars that people will still want to drive in the future will cause far less pollution then than they do now. Jochen Muller, a BMW executive, has his vision for that future. Electric cars have one big advantage, there is no local emission. And especially in megacities, it's not only that you do not have any local emission, there's also less noise. Jochen Muller was speaking to me in the German city of Leipzig, which emerged from the damage of war and the legacy of being part of communist East Germany to become the almost perfect European town, at least transport-wise. Every second person seems to be walking or riding a bike or a tram. Perhaps as a tribute to this success story, some of the world's most highly rated experts on mobility gather here annually under the auspices of the International Transport Forum, which is a specialist agency within the OECD. But these authorities weren't in Leipzig to gaze fondly at its successes. They were focused on global solutions, using better technology to make the rest of the world more like Leipzig and less polluted, less congested and less inequitable than it is now. One possible solution put on show in Leipzig was the hydrogen or fuel cell car. There are no emissions coming from its tailpipe, when its hydrogen combines with oxygen, it produces H2O, harmless old water. This is a Honda FCX Clarity. It's a fuel cell electric car, so it runs on hydrogen and um, gives electric power to the electric motor, which sits in the front. Can you show me how to drive this car? Yes, sure. sure. So I get in behind the wheel with an electric car authority, Sebastian Genschau. And though the controls are all on the wrong side of the cabin, it's fun to drive, it's easy, and it's very quiet. The only noise is from other cars overtaking me. The big advantage is that the hydrogen, that is our source of electricity in, from the fuel cell, uh, can be filled up within three minutes. 
and we get we get a range of around 400 to the new models uh, up to 700 kilometers which is compatible with the combustion engines that we have now a hydrogen car would be especially clean in New Zealand where the electricity that's needed to extract hydrogen is largely renewable in the first place. The battery-powered car is a big rival, though Sebastian Ginshaw says the two can easily coexist. I'm convinced that the fuel cell will make it in the long run and also getting it's becoming popular more and more within the next, let's say, three to five years and uh, we'll have a status like the battery electric car now. And in the end, we're gonna have the scenario that all the big cars that need a long range, like trucks and buses and, and cars for, for, for transportation, like taxis, will work on fuel cells, whereas little small cars in the cities and car-sharing cars, for instance, will be run by battery electric system. In pushing the hydrogen car, Sebastian Genschau didn't have the environmental field entirely to himself in Leipzig. A formidable rival was also there, J.B. Straubel, co-founder and technical director of California's Tesla company. He strongly pushes battery-driven cars, saying hydrogen cars don't make sense when the public often object to having tanks of hydrogen stored in their neighbourhoods for safety reasons. Sebastian Genshaw counters that hydrogen storage is actually safer than petrol storage, and that's been done for decades in service stations around the world. Despite these arguments, Tesla's J.B. Straubel is ignoring hydrogen and going for battery-powered cars hell for leather. Our Model 3 vehicle, it's the, the most recent car that we're engineering and we just uh, launched a few months ago, and the, the public reception has been phenomenal for that car. Today we have almost 400,000 pre-orders for this vehicle that does far exceed our ability to produce it. We're in the middle of accelerating our production ramps to achieve that, um, almost doubling our manufacturing ramp plans. But it's just such an exciting testament to what you know, customer demand really looks like. For a long time there's been a, a criticism that you know, people just don't want them. And I think this example really proves the point that that is not true. Tesla isn't the only car company making electric vehicles. Most have some sort of project underway. One of the biggest is the German luxury car maker BMW, which moved outside its traditional base in Bavaria to manufacture electric cars at a special plant near Leipzig, which is in Saxony. Jochen Muller is the corporate communications officer at BMW and he says so-called e-cars or battery electric cars are growing slowly but they'll gradually gain on the company's existing production of petrol or diesel-driven vehicles. We are in a phase of evolution and revolution and for many, many years to come we will see both. We will see that evolutionary steps in, in conventional systems and we will also see uh, revolutionary steps uh, by uh, electrical cars or for example also in the future uh, fuel cell cars. Last year we have uh, produced 24,000 uh, BMW i-cars compared to 2.2 million uh, in total last year but from this uh, let's say low level there will be a significant increase in the next years. For these cars, the single biggest feature is the battery, which runs under almost the entire floor of the machine and is several centimetres thick, and that led to another decision. It's well known that batteries are quite heavy. We said we have to compensate the weight of the battery because that helps for the range, and as BMW we have to fulfil a brand promise that also applies to battery electric vehicles. So we said let's find a way to reduce the weight significantly, and there 
carbon fiber is a great is a great material and uh, already in the year 2000 our board decided to develop an industrialized process to produce carbon fiber parts in an industrialized way and we are now the only company in the world to produce uh, these carbon fiber parts in a high volume a big issue at present is cost electric cars are expensive and jb straubel of tesla says that's the next big challenge to tackle he also strongly counters critics who say electric cars are not as clean as they appear to be, saying they've got it wrong with their accusations of hidden environmental impacts. People will pull out small statistics and try and maybe pull them out of context, but you know clearly the foot, environmental footprint, whether it's CO2 or, or just raw energy needed to create the battery mainly and the unique parts of an electric car you know, are offset by the, the more efficient operation and the cleaner operation of that car. And the studies we've seen done around the world, that payback happens in usually a, a few thousand miles distance of driving and operating the car. And it does depend, of course, where the electricity comes from. You know, that payback is fastest if you operate the car from sustainable energy, which is obviously what I think is the right thing to do here. Um, but even if you're using fossil fuel energy, gas or coal, you still see an environmental benefit. You know, it's more efficient to generate that energy and that electricity centrally than it is to do it in hundreds or thousands of individual power plants in every car. And you also remove the urban air pollution challenge by doing that. Despite this, few transport experts think the electric car is a solution on its own. They might be cleaner and quieter, but having too many of them could clutter up a city streets just as easily as petrol-driven cars can. And they say traffic congestion is an economic disaster for any city with multiple knock-on effects, all of them serious. So perhaps another problem has to be dealt with, individual car ownership. Why should you buy your own car when you could instead share it with your neighbours or your friends? One person who strongly supports this is Robin Chase, who was a co-founder of the peer-to-peer car-sharing firm Zipcar. She says a typical car is very expensive when all costs are included and there has to be a better way, especially in a future world where cars can use satellite navigation and radar-style hazard detectors to basically drive themselves. With apps, it's really easy to have on-demand trips. If we share autonomous cars and we have shared trips, as in I buy a seat in a car, I've now brought the price of car transportation down to the price of a subway ticket. And that is incredibly appealing. That transforms access to opportunity for everyone in cities everywhere. Um, Right now, when we have our car ownership structure, people are spending 18% of their household incomes on their car. And they're also unwilling to make the economic choices of, do I take the subway? Do I walk? Do I bike? because I already own my car, I think is the fastest, cheapest way. So if we move to shared autonomous cars, we now have enabled people a cheaper way to use a car, and we also cause them to think from a financial standpoint, how should I get someplace? Is it faster to walk? Is it better to take the subway? Under this scenario, a small number of driverless cars would service a neighbourhood. You would book one in advance, sit in the back seat doing your emails and be dropped off at your destination, leaving the car free to pick up someone else. The capital cost of a car per passenger would be hugely reduced, as would the dangers of having a traffic crash, since the vehicle would use GPS and hazard detectors to avoid all dangers in advance. But is there another problem? Is there a psychological hurdle to overcome? 
It's common for people, especially men, to regard their car as a status symbol, as an extension of their own personality or even their ego. To feel complete, they just have to get behind a wheel. Robin Chase questions that view. I think that that is largely oversold, and that's what we saw with Zipcar: is that that is not a no longer status issue, and economics are the driving force. And if you talk to young people today, if you were to say to someone, "Would you rather drive someplace, or would you rather be driven and be able to be online during that time?" I think everybody would say, "I'd rather be looking at my smartphone." <laughs> Rather than um, the road, and our status is now derived in totally different ways than car ownership. So we we are seeing in the U.S. where I know the numbers, people are getting their licenses later, and they are buying their first car way later, and it's just no longer the status symbol it used to be. So the egotistical SUV owner is、uh, going the way of the dinosaur.、Uh, the egotistical SUV owner is now 45 and older, and no one wants to be like him. <laughs> Having large numbers of autonomous shared electric cars on the road could bring another problem. It would require a total shift from current methods of paying for road building and road maintenance, which are now largely derived from petrol taxes. Shared cars could also greatly undermine the auto industry, and Robin Chase says quite bluntly that some car companies will die. But firms like Tesla, which are trying to create the future, And BMW, which is anticipating it, have no intention of disappearing. Neither has Renault, France's largest car maker and one of the world's top 12 producers. A senior Renault executive, Claire Martin, is optimistic about future sales despite car-sharing schemes. Still, they need cars to to share. I mean, so as car makers, we haven't seen、uh, yet any decrease in the sales, any any decrease in the production. Anyway, there are reservoirs of of growth in a certain number of countries where they want more cars. So we have our role to play because the need for mobility is so high around the world, so that there is plenty of opportunities for for companies like us. So you don't think total numbers of、uh, output would drop? No, th- this is not what we are、uh, seeing for the last couple of years and the next couple of, of years. And the more we will bring affordable, accessible technologies for more and more people, the more we'll bring solutions. Claire Martin adds, Renault is also making electric cars along with Nissan, which it part owns. Uh, since the beginning, we have sold more than 280,000 cars together, electric vehicles together, Renault and Nissan, and we see very good progress every month in the deployment of these、uh, cars. Will they replace the、uh, internal combustion engine, and if so, when? I think that first, the electric vehicles will replace the second car of the household. In the minds of the people, the fact that once or twice a year you have to go to drive 500 kilometers is an obstacle for many people to choose electric vehicles. But the reality is that for people owning electric vehicles, they are charging in 90% of the cases at home. Or at work. One transport-related activity which appears on the face of it to be very damaging to the environment is this. The 
demented sounding scream of a Formula One engine racing at 15,000 revs, belching out CO2 on every hairpin bend. But in future, there might be the slightly quieter sound of this. The easier to bear sound of Formula E. Now in its second year, with teams like McLaren and Williams helping build electric racing cars and some big names heading the racing teams. Fighting for victory are the Audi Apt team and uh, Renault, which is uh, also one of the you know, big contenders of the championship, followed very closely by the Virgin um, DST. That's Alejandro Agag from Spain, who runs Formula E. His cars are far cleaner than Formula One, but in other respects, he says, they have a lot in common. The acceleration of electric cars can compare perfectly with other racing cars of any category. Zero to 100 in about 2.9 seconds. We could go as high as 250 to 60 with this car. We usually race it at 220 uh, kilometers per hour. So, you know, performance is very high for the streets of the cities where we race. What sort of future does it have? Well, I think it has the same future as the mobility in general. You know, I think mobility needs to change to more green and sustainable. So I think all the cars in the world will be electric one day. And when all the cars of the world are electric, electric racing will be the main type of racing, I think. But Formula One won't give up its leading status without a fight. Not according to the man who's in charge of it worldwide, the French auto supremo and former rally driver Jean Todd, although he admires Formula E a lot. I think it's a, a great uh, category of uh, racing. You know, Formula Electric, single-seater, which is uh, able to race in the biggest cities in the world, is a great demonstration of a new energy. Will it ever replace Formula One? No, absolutely not. It's, we're talking about two different things. Will uh, basketball uh, replace uh, soccer? I don't think so. Or rugby. I mean, you are a rugby man. Will rugby uh, substitute uh, football? I don't think so. So there is no reason why Formula One should be compared to Formula E. What if all the cars on the road are electric cars? Will that affect Formula One at all? Not at all. There, there, is, no, there is no link. Whatever sort of car hurtles round a racetrack in days to come, it's likely to be transported there by another vehicle from the future, the driverless truck. The Secretary-General of the International Transport Forum, Jose Viegas, is adamant this type of vehicle is coming and it's unstoppable. Trucks on motorways, if you want from motorway service station to motorway service station, is something that many of the companies are telling us will be literally ready to go next year, two years from now, if there is the regulation that allows it. So technology will be very ready. Just to give you an idea, the driver represents 50% of the cost and it restricts the truck operation to eight hours a day. If you have no driver there, the cost is about half and the reach per day is three times longer. So it's a massive game changer, massive. And if your company has this technology available and mine hasn't, and we're in the same market, two months later, I'm out of the game. For civil aviation, the problem is a bigger one. Although it accounts for only 2% of global emissions, the industry is growing fast. And there's no electric motor waiting in the wings capable of hurling a 575-ton Airbus A380 off the tarmac and into the air. But the aviation industry has already taken measures, increasing the fuel efficiency of an airliner by 80% in the past 50 years. And it'll do more, according to a senior official at the International Civil Aviation Organization, Jane Hooper. 
From 2020, we will continue to grow traffic, but not the emissions. We will take measures to maintain from 2020 the emissions in the same level. And we, we have put together a, a basket of measures to do that. Technology, operations, alternative fuels, and market-based measures. Some of these measures would require planes to take more direct routes to make sure they don't hang about on the tarmac, needlessly burning fuel while they wait to take off, and to use solar power while tethered to an airport terminal. Another would be to require planes to use more biofuels, but Ms Hooper concedes this could be hard to achieve when the price of oil is low. On a wider scale, improving the carbon footprint of airlines would need agreement on market-based measures, and that will consist of developing a gigantic emissions trading scheme which would allow airlines to invest in carbon-consuming industries such as forestry to offset the emissions they produce from their engines. Aviation experts agree this will be a tough challenge as they need to get agreement from 191 member states of the International Civil Aviation Organization and they need that to meet the industry's pledge to stabilize emissions despite forecast high growth from 2020 on. Jane Hooper says the challenge must be met given how big the aviation industry has become and how indispensable it is to the world economy. Aviation directly supports employment of 8.5 million people, contributes over 2.5 trillion of global gross domestic product and carries over 2.9 billion passengers and 5.3 trillion worth of cargo annually. We are doubling passengers, we are doubling cargo in our perspectives by 2030 and we have to be responsible. None of this comes close to being an exhaustive look at technological solutions. There'll need to be bigger and more cost-effective ships, more and better trains, better trams and buses, and so on. But that's not all. To make it work, people need to break the habits of several lifetimes, according to one expert, Clayton Lane. He leads the New York-headquartered Institute of Transport and Development Policy and says for years the wrong transport projects have been applied in the wrong place, leading to streets without footpaths, urban sprawl without public transport and state-of-the-art motorways running past impoverished slums. There's an underlying problem that for many years, despite the fact that about 70% of Mexico City residents walk and bike and take transit every day, 70% of the transport budget is dedicated toward building highways and encouraging more driving for the few people who drive. But we see this policy bias in cities around the world, cities of India, cities of Brazil. The basic pattern is more than two-thirds of people walking, biking and taking transit, more than two-thirds of budget for highways. So the argument is for better government policies as well as better technology. Robin Chase of Zipcar agrees. The current system is a calamity if we think of major cities around the world, Beijing, Cairo, Istanbul. I was in London the other day, and it's gridlock, and people aren't able to do all the things they want to do. That's just from an actual physical momentum standpoint, without even looking at the environmental calamity and the economic toll this one action is taking. And along with better technology comes a need for better public attitudes. The petrol and other taxes paid on all those cars with one person in them barreling down the motorway into the metropolis for work and back home again don't come close to paying for the real cost of the greenhouse gas emissions and the congestion they cause. Less well known is the fact that these drivers also shortchange themselves. Robin Chase again. Right now, when we have our car ownership structure, 
people are spending 18% of their household incomes on their car. That means when you work, your first hour and a half of work is just paying off the car that it took you to get there. That is a crazy way to have designed our cities and designed our lifestyles. Many critics argue this would be less of a problem if people had to pay the real cost of their greenhouse gas emissions instead of a partial cost or none at all. But the International Transport Forum's Secretary General Jose Viegas says there needs to be more. There needs to be better regulation. There should be more soundly based government policies on transport's impact on the environment. Mr Viegas says even though the private sector is the driving force behind most technological solutions, well-thought-out regulations are needed to make sure those solutions work well. Technology will help, but technology will not be enough and certainly will not be fast enough. There is something called public interest, and many of these services do not provide universal coverage. They can have rules for access to their services which may be discriminatory. Sometimes the government may need or should need to intervene, for instance, to make some of the data these companies collect available for better regulation of their own services, for better planning. What I believe is that there is a new way to look at the regulation of transport, particularly in urban areas. It's a new mindset. But what if all of this doesn't work? What if better technology, better regulation, improved public attitudes and proper economic consequences for transport fail to save the world from devastating environmental damage? According to policy expert Clayton Lane, that would be a disaster. Currently there are about one billion motor vehicles on the roads. It took us about a century to make that happen. But the projection is that in the next 35 years, we will triple that to 3 billion motor vehicles. And that cannot happen. That's completely unsustainable. But, says Clayton Lane, there is an alternative. We need electric cars. We need to decarbonize the transport system by having all electric vehicles and connecting them to a green grid. But this will take a long time. It will require enormous investment. And in addition to that, we need to prioritize sustainable modes of transport, walking, cycling, and public transit. We have found through our own research that these are not only more sustainable for the environment, more equitable for all people, but also more affordable. Cities can save over $100 trillion by 2050 in capital and operating costs by investing in sustainable transport rather than into expensive, high-carbon highways for cars. But in addition to electric vehicles and sustainable modes, we also need to share cars. There's tremendous opportunity to just drive more efficiently, where we can all use the same car throughout the day or use the same car at the same time. The vision is that we'll have automated vehicles, which are electric and shared. I'm Eric Frickberg, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, it would be great to hear from you. Our email is inside at radioNZ.co.nz or post a tweet. Our handle is at InsightRNZ. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by Phil Benge.